Welcome to Unraveling the Middle East. America's military has been present in the Middle East for several decades now. We fought wars there, conducted special operations, and have military bases in and around the Middle East. Also for decades, we have militarily supported Israel. But how did this happen? How did America's military strategy evolve from fighting Nazis and fascists in World War II and then confronting and containing communism in proxy wars such as the wars in Korea and Vietnam to getting militarily entangled in the Middle East? And a, and a big question that it faces, that the national security establishment faces, well, if, if, if we're not going to fight in places like Vietnam, where should we be prepared to fight? We got lots of Americans getting killed in places like Korea, in places like Vietnam. We don't have any Americans getting killed in, in the Middle East uh, until we get to the Carter Doctrine of 1979, we had been counting on the Shah to be a stabilizing force in the region. When he is overthrown and replaced by anti-American radicals, then expectations that we're going to get any help from Iran disappear. In many respects, now the expectation is Iran has become a problem. I bet you it's not one American out of a hundred uh, actually knows this. But the United States supported Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s. Unraveling the Middle East is a special series production of the History Behind News program, where 125 scholars and counting explain the histories behind our current events. And I'm Atel Ali your host. In the four seasons of the History Behind News podcast, I've had the pleasure of speaking with many prominent scholars about Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Turkey, Arabia, and Iran and its Persian past. But you know what? We've only scratched the surface here. So join me and my guest scholars in this fascinating journey into the history, myths, and mysteries of the Middle East. My guest for this episode, which was recorded in early January 2024, is Dr. Andrew Basevich, co-founder and chairman of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University. He's a graduate of West Point, a Vietnam War veteran, and a retired colonel of the U.S. Army. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than a dozen books, including the following. First, the new American militarism. Second, the limits of power. Third, paths of dissent. Soldiers speak out against America's forever wars. And fourth, America's war for the greater Middle East. To learn more about Dr. Basevich, you can visit his academic homepage and also the website for the Quincy Institute, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, Stay with me as Dr. Basevich and I unravel the Middle East. 
Dr. Basevich, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. When did America become militarily involved in the Middle East? Well, I'll focus on your reference to militarily involved. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. United States has been involved in the Middle East since the earliest days of the Republic. I suppose one could argue uh, even that Americans were involved even before the revolution. However, oh. mm -hmm. the military involvement uh, in, in my telling of the tale uh, began in 1979 with the promulgation of the Carter Doctrine. Now, uh, some of your listeners would say that can't possibly the, be the case. America didn't discover the Middle East in 1979. Yeah, uh, We had been involved there long before that. And in a sense, of course, that's true, uh, but not true in a, in a, in a military uh, uh, sense. Now, let me concede that during World War II, of course, U.S. troops fought in North Africa. Uh, U.S. forces used uh, Persia, modern-day Iran, mm -hmm. as a corridor uh, to extend uh, lend-lease supplies uh, to the Soviets. Uh, but that was a response to a very particular emergency. I guess more to the point, if we look at the period after World War II, as the United States engages in the Cold War, as the U.S. begins to create a uh, global empire of, of military bases, as the United States begins to embrace military interventionism in places like Korea, places like Vietnam, the Middle East remains an afterthought. Uh, oh, there okay. are no U.S. forces stationed in what we would call the Middle East uh, prior to 1979, with two minor exceptions that in a sense make the point. The one exception is that the so-called Fifth Fleet was stationed in the Persian Gulf, headquarters in Bahrain, but the Fifth Fleet basically consisted of three ships. It was not a significant fighting force. It was merely a presence. And the other exception that tends to uh, prove the rule is that in 1958, President Eisenhower directed the U.S. forces, a small number of U.S. forces, to intervene in Lebanon. Uh, but this was a, a, a bloodless intervention that lasted uh, a matter of, of, a, of a couple of weeks. So if we look at the entire period of American global primacy, mm -hmm. which I would date from World War II, yeah. There are no U.S. forces permanently stationed in the region, except for the, the small Fifth Fleet, and there are no U.S. forces engaged in combat there. We've got lots of Americans getting killed in places like Korea, in places like Vietnam. We don't have any Americans getting killed in, in the Middle East uh, until we get to the Carter Doctrine of 1979, promulgated by President Carter which crucially, crucially designates the Persian Gulf region as a vital interest of the United States and, in Carter's words, a place that we would now be willing to fight and die for. That oh, wow. statement, the Carter Doctrine, is what initiates the militarization of U.S. policy in the region. It's after the problem, or I should say in response to the promulgation of the Carter Doctrine, that uh, we create uh, United States Central Command, 
as a military command responsible for that region. It's, a, it's in response to the Carter Doctrine that the U.S. begins to prepare war plans to intervene in this region, begins to conduct exercises in places like Egypt to prepare for intervention, begins to negotiate over-flight over, over rights and, and uh, base access, uh, begins to pre-position equipment, uh, for example, in the Indian Ocean, putting in place all the things needed to intervene. Those had not existed until, until 1979. That's the reason I argued that it is with the Carter Doctrine that the U.S. military involvement down to the present moment, it's in 1979, that that narrative really begins. So um, let me ask a follow-up question and also clarify a point for myself and our audience. When we use the word military and, and you use the phrase military sense, we're excluding things such as coup d'etat, such as the 1953 coup d'etat in Iran, and we're excluding things such as providing military supplies and know-how to the regimes of the Middle East. Military sense, you mean boots on the ground in the Middle East, correct? Yes, I, I, I yeah. absolutely exclude covert operations. Yeah. Again, the, the argument here is not that the United States didn't care about the Middle East prior to 1979. The argument is that the Carter Doctrine in 1979 begins the process of militarizing U.S. policy, and the militarization of U.S. policy then leads to a host of other consequences, most importantly, a series of wars that continue down, down the present moment. Um, my follow-up question is this. You mentioned uh, World War II. Um, there was the Tehran conference where Stalin, Churchill, and President uh, Roosevelt actually went to Tehran. Um, did we replace the British Empire in the Middle East, essentially, after World War II? Well, I think, I think uh, the, the war uh, made the British Empire unsustainable. Well, I think one could argue that that empire, uh, per se, formal empire, having colonies, you know, governing uh, people deemed to be of uh, of a lesser race. I think as by the time we get to the end of World War II, that entire proposition has been has been discredited, and therefore uh, the uh, the British Empire is is doomed. The Brits don't necessarily see that or acknowledge that. I think in retrospect. Uh, we can see it and, and acknowledge that. Yeah. So yeah. for so beginning with the immediate aftermath of World War II, a, a story of British withdrawal from the Middle East uh, uh, begins. Uh, and the era of British dominance in places like Egypt and Iran, uh, that is now coming to an end. Probably the event that most clearly illustrates that is the Suez Crisis of 1956. Yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll recall, undertaken as a result of a conspiracy involving Great Britain, France, and Israel with an immediate aim of overthrowing President Nasser in, in Egypt and reclaiming uh, uh, for France and Great Britain ownership of the, of the Suez Canal. Yeah. Uh, Nasser having, uh, having uh, nationalized the canal, that was the... Uh, the, the trigger uh, for the military action. So this effort on the part of Great Britain to assert great power uh, authority, uh, to demonstrate that the old empire 
in this region was still sustainable ends up be failing catastrophically. Yeah. Uh, and I think more than any other particular moment, that's what signals that Great Britain is, is doomed uh, as an imperial power in the region. And, and there's going to be a power vacuum. It doesn't follow inevitably that the United States is going to fill that vacuum. But I think when you consider the broader context of the Cold War, pitting the United States against the Soviets, the West against the East, uh, that outcome probably was pretty close to uh, foreordained. You mentioned uh, the withdrawal uh, of Britain after World War II from the Middle East, um, which makes me think of uh, this question. Today, we think of Israel as strategically important for our country. Was this always the case, Dr. Basevich? No. No? Uh, I mean, it's it is certainly true uh, that uh, President Truman, in 1948, when the Israel declared its independence, uh, that, that President Truman, uh, along with the Soviets, uh, hastened to recognize uh, Israel as a, as a legitimate nation state with a place mm -hmm. in the international order. And the United States has never retreated from that, rethought that. However, it doesn't follow that we sought to have some warm uh, uh, friendship uh, with Israel. A special, we didn't seek a special relationship. We certainly didn't speak, uh, try to forge a military relationship with Israel. All that would follow uh, in the subsequent decades. So, for example, we, we take it for granted, I think, as Americans, we take it for granted that the United States provides something on the order of three or three and a half billion dollars of, of weaponry yeah, uh, yeah. every year. No strings attached. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Just happens. Uh, bipartisan support. Uh, nobody. Nope. <laughs> it's just it just happens. Yeah. Uh, well, that was not the case in the 1950s. The first significant huh. uh, uh, supply of weaponry uh, by the United States to Israel didn't happen until the Kennedy administration in the early 1960s. Uh, and, and significantly, I think, uh, it was a weapon sales. Uh, the United States agreed to sell to Israel uh, Hawk missiles, which were then uh, a type of anti-aircraft missile. But it, they didn't give them to him. <laughs> they said he got to pay for these things. Oh, that's kind of uh, like but, when but we that, sell stuff. What, go, ahead. go ahead. That you mean sale, as in we were not giving them. That's different than what we do now, right? Bingo. Absolutely different. Oh. In other words, right today, that that three whatever it is, point five billion dollars of of uh, what Washington calls security assistance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's paid. That's that's American taxpayer money. In uh, the sale of Hawk missiles by the Kennedy administration, it was Israeli money to pay the United States uh, um, for those missiles. I know this next question could be a whole podcast on its own. I'm just wondering, when did that change happen from selling to them versus assisting them, giving it to them for free? It, hap it happens incrementally over time. Uh -huh. uh, I think a very significant milestone in that is going to be, uh, was, uh, the Six-Day War of 1967. Uh, oh, yeah, the Six-Day yeah. War uh, has, I think, been radically misinterpreted from all, from several points of view. But it seemed at the time that the very survival of Israel was at risk. 
And I think that that served, in a sense, as a wake-up call, uh, which substantially changed U.S. attitudes with regard to the security of, of Israel. So beginning with 1967 and then increasing over time, uh, the, uh, the, the, the terms of the relationship change so that the United States ends up providing uh, what, it, what it does today. Oh, uh, I see. No, at no cost to the government of Israel. We'll be back after a short break to talk about America's military involvement in the Middle East in the last decades of the Cold War. We'll be right back. After we toppled Saddam Hussein, there was a moment, perhaps a golden moment, a moment before Iran's current nuclear ambitions and regional proxy wars began, in which we could have potentially neutralized Iran through diplomacy. But the United States had just toppled a government in two weeks. This is a moment of hubris in the Bush administration that he thinks not only is militarily absolutely mighty, but, I, but that it's going to change the entire Middle East by removing dictatorship. So it's a mentality, and I think some people like Dick Cheney and Wolfowitz and others were saying it, that today Baghdad, tomorrow Tehran. In Season 2, Episode 25 of the History Behind News podcast, I spoke with Dr. Vali Nasser about America's failed diplomacy in the Middle East. He's a former dean of Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies and has advised senior American policymakers, including the President, Secretary of State, senior members of Congress, and presidential campaigns. Dr. Nasser explained to me why Iran and the United States seem to be in a perpetual state of conflict. And here's something for you to think about. We fought a total war in Vietnam. More than 50,000 Americans died there. Yet, some 20 years later, we reestablished relations with communist Vietnam. So, why can't that happen with Iran? I think Dr. Nasser's answer to this question may surprise you. I've dropped a link to my conversation with Dr. Nasser in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Basevich about America's military presence in the Middle East. Dr. Basevich, in the last segment, you mentioned the Vietnam War, and as I understand it, you served in the Vietnam War as well. How did our military involvement in Vietnam change our military policy in the Middle East? Well, uh, indirectly. Uh, but ultimately, uh, significantly. The larger context here is the Cold War. I mean, why why did we fight this foolish war in, in Vietnam? Vietnam? Yeah. Well, the answer is because it appeared that uh, the essence of the of the argument was the free world pitted pitted against global communism. Uh, that 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 was being uh, that Vietnam was one of the places where this great historic confrontation was going to be decided. We were going to draw all the that, line there, right? All that turns out to be malarkey. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in, in retrospect, what, what, why we, it's all malarkey. Nonetheless, okay. uh, given the mindset of, of the time, uh, the, the South Vietnam is deemed a place worth, worth fighting and dying for. 
Yeah. Uh, and when that war goes badly, uh, badly would be a understatement. Uh, yeah. It, 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 it leaves the U.S. US forces uh, badly demoralized, uh, in, in terrible shape. Uh, and it finds the American people, I think, uh, uh, disillusioned, made, yeah, disillusioned, yeah. Uh, and and the what we would call the establishment uh, comes out of Vietnam, facing a challenge of how to reconstruct the armed forces, re- restore morale, restore effectiveness. And also restore uh, among the American people a sense of confidence uh, that the U.S. armed forces are are competent. It's very hard for us to remember now that by the time back in 1969 or 1970, uh, the U.S. Army, uh, in in the eyes of of many, perhaps most Americans, uh, looked looked like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Uh, everything we did. But we won uh, World War II. I mean, that's within living memory of people in 1969. And, and that was what was supposed to happen in Vietnam, and it sure yeah. the heck didn't. So so there is a strong need after Vietnam to try to rebuild the American military, not simply in a substantive sense, but but restore confidence in the American mil- in the American military in the eyes of the American people. Uh, so so, so the military, the military comes home from Vietnam. And a, and a big question that it faces, that the national security type of it faces. Well, if 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 we're not going to fight in places like Vietnam, where should we be prepared to fight? What kind of forces should we should our our, our should the American uh, Army, Navy, Air Force be, be gearing up for? And the answer they came up with is, well, obviously, we should prepare ourselves to fight the Soviets. Of Get course. ready to fight the Red Army. Yeah. The, not the not the North Vietnamese Army. Not the proxies. The Red Army itself. Exactly right. So the United States in the 1970s embarks upon a a major reform project to try to restore effectiveness and self confidence in the American in the American military, with an eye toward the possibility of war uh, in with with the Soviet Union. So we're doing this in the 1970s with an eye towards USSR. Right. USSR. Um, and one of our biggest allies in the Middle East is the Shah of Iran, Imperial Iran. Bingo. And I want to go back to what you said before, the Carter Doctrine in 1979. Uh, you know, Middle East is, is, is a region right. worth fighting and dying for. Right. And all of a sudden you have the Iranian Revolution, 1979. The Ayatollahs, all of them come back. What happens here? First of all, what's the Carter Doctrine? And then, okay, so the Carter Doctrine is a statement uh, in a speech by Jimmy Carter, I believe, January nineteen eighty. Okay, so speech after the Congress, revolution of Iraq, after in in many respects, in response to the revolution, oh, we had okay. been counting on the Shah to be a stabilizing force in the region when he is overthrown and replaced by anti-American radicals, then expectations that we're going to get any help from Iran disappear. In many respects, now the expectation is Iran has become a problem. 
almost simultaneously in December of 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. what's going on here? Uh, and the, the interpretation is that with the United States weakened by Vietnam, the Soviets have now embarked upon an effort to expand their empire, expand it by seizing control of Afghanistan. And then, this is the perception at the time by the Americans, continuing into Iran, arguably towards Saudi Arabia. Why? Why? Why would the Soviets do that? Because of oil. Because by the time we get to the end of the 1970s, everybody understands the strategic importance of oil. The perception is that there is a finite amount of oil that world supplies are dwindling and that the prosperity of the United States is dependent upon American access to oil, a point driven home by the oil crises of the 1970s. Yeah, 1973. It suddenly, it suddenly appears that American prosperity, even American democracy, is dependent upon access to Middle Eastern oil. And Jimmy Carter responds to that by saying, and therefore, I declare that we will fight for the Persian Gulf. Oh, wow. That's now, a big statement. That could have. Okay. You, you think? I, I, I want to I make sure I understand this phrase that you used, this, this statement that you made. We were counting on the show. When you say counting, I mean, how big of a military force was Iran? We, well, we were supplying, uh, we, were, we were arming the Iran, uh, arming Iran. I don't, I don't know the numbers. It was a billion, two billion dollars worth of weaponry per year. That's substantial. We were training Iranian forces. It was an expectation that Iran, in a sense, would, uh, uh, that we could outsource uh, Persian Gulf stability to Iran. We were counting yeah. on him to be our, our policeman on the beat. And of course, when the revolution overturns the, the Shah's regime, that expectation is demolished. Well, who's going who's gonna to police the beat? Who's going to maintain stability? Who's going to ensure that the war continues to flow? And the answer that the Carter administration came up with, that's going to have to be us. You know, as you explain this, Dr. Basevich, uh, the way that I see the Carter doctrine, it almost sounds more existential type of worry about... Yes than, let's say, Vietnam. Vietnam was a policy of containing uh, the Soviets and and fighting the Cold War. But in our eyes, had the Middle East been lost, that may have undermined our country. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I agree with you because, oh. uh, however foolishly, foolishly, mm -hmm. uh, we had persuaded ourselves that freedom itself was at stake in Southeast Asia. That, that it was a vital oh. interest of the United States to ensure the safety and security of the Republic of Vietnam. Again, in retrospect, nonsense. nonsense. Didn't appear that way in 1965 when President Johnson begins to uh, Americanize the war. I would argue that the perception of the stakes uh, in the Persian Gulf, in the Middle East, uh, after the overthrow of the Shah and after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is comparable. It does appear 
in the eyes of American policymakers, in the eyes of many Americans who who were very disturbed by these long gas lines. It, wow. it appeared that the American way of life, our freedom, was now at stake. And it was wow. that perception then that leads the Carter administration and all succeeding administrations to uh, to militarize U.S. policy, uh, to, um, to begin to gear up to intervene in the region in ways that the U.S. military had never prefer- prepared for before. Let me share a personal story with you. Um, I was a I was a kid. It was my cousin's birthday, and the mother of one of the guests rushes in. Uh, we were living in Tehran, Iran, and she says, yells out, "The airport just got bombed. Iraq." invaded Iran. Did we know this? Did we help Iraq? Um, There are some stories that we gave the green light to Saddam Hussein, but that's been rebutted. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I I don't have any thoughts on uh, the specifics of how the conflict began. I don't know. I mean, clearly it was begun by Iraq, by Saddam Hussein, uh, whose whose purpose was uh, to seize uh, certain oil fields uh, that were disputed, had long been disputed, I think, between Iran and Iraq. So he, uh, Saddam looks across the border. He sees the turmoil of the revolution in Iran. And so he says, hey, man, this is going to be easy. Let me take I'm advantage gonna, of I'm this. Gonna, I'm going to go grab this low-hanging fruit. Uh, and so he initiates the war. Uh, the, the sad part, I think, is that uh, the United States then chooses to take sides. And I bet you it's not one American out of 100 uh, actually knows this, but the United States supported Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. It did so by providing intelligence. It did so by providing material wherewithal. It did so by facilitating the sale of weapons to the Iraqi military. We didn't provide any fighter aircraft or tanks, uh, uh, but we provided all kinds of other material support in this horrible war that went on the entire decade. Why do you say the sad thing? Wasn't Iran uh, suddenly an anti-American government? Doesn't that come natural to us to help? To me, the the sad thing is, I don't remember the number of Iranians and Iraqis who were killed in this war. I think it was over a million, yeah. Something like that. Uh, And it solved nothing. Uh, And the United States was complicit, uh, complicit in supporting Saddam Hussein, who, of course, a decade later, we portrayed as the the embodiment of evil. I mean, it's it's kind of you can't make it up. (laughs) You can't Uh, make it up. Um, I I want to in the in the minute we have left of this segment, Dr. Basevich, I want to make sure I understand a phrase that you've used a, a, a term to use several times. Establishment. What do you mean by that? Well. It, I, it's probably a, a term that I, I, I shouldn't use, uh, but I, I do believe that uh, uh, since World War II, mm-hmm. over time, in and around Washington, a national security apparatus has come into existence. Uh, what does it consist of? Well, it consists of the military. It consists of the civilians who provide oversight to the military, the National Security Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, intelligence agencies uh, who share a common mindset. And, and the mindset is one centered, I think, on two things. Number one, 
the United States has to exercise unquestioned global leadership. And number two, the exercise of global leadership requires military superiority, if not military supremacy. Uh, uh-huh. and, and, and and Vietnam certainly uh, uh, called all of that into question. Uh, but and and the overthrow of the Shah, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, all of that seemed to suggest that American global leadership was weak and that the American military needed to, uh, to restore itself, to put Vietnam in the rearview mirror, to once again possess unquestioned uh, superiority. Unquestioned and, superiority. And, 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 and the Middle East was the venue uh, was one of the venues, maybe the most important venue, when that had to be sorted out in the eyes of the establishment. The establishment, I see. Let's take a break here. In the next segment of our conversation, we'll talk about America's military in the Middle East after the Cold War, some of which we already talked about, and after 9-11. And I'll ask Dr. Basevich this question. On the whole, has our military involvement in the Middle East paid off? So please join Dr. Basevich and I tomorrow for the rest of this conversation. Prior to listening to this episode, did you know that the United States, our government, supported Saddam Hussein in his long war against Iran. Do you believe that America should continue to intervene in Middle East conflicts, or should America leave the area alone and let the countries of the Middle East fight their own battles and reach peace on their own terms, terms that are dictated by the limits of their own internal resources? Please don't hesitate to share your opinion with me And you can do that by clicking the link for this question in the detailed caption of our episode. Also, please join Dr. Basevich and I tomorrow for the rest of this conversation as we unravel the Middle East. If you enjoyed the music in our podcast, check out the links and attributions to the talented artists who created these wonderful pieces. As for our guests, the opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At Unraveling the Middle East podcast, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history. The history of the Middle East. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here. Rather, our guests provide in-depth analysis of and narratives from the past. And our mission is not to provide a complete account of this region with a swung and complex history. Rather, it's to highlight some issues and incidents from its past that may poke and prod your discerning minds to unravel the histories, myths, and mysteries of the Middle East.
And if you disagree with our take on the history of the Middle East, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about complex issues that elude easy soundbite answers. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments on our social media pages or sending me an email to info at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Unraveling the Middle East.